You know what that sound means. Welcome to the most interesting part of your day. An exciting episode of the Metaphysical Mysteries with your intrepid hosts, Dr. Terry Trueblood and Dr. Tom Greenhall. Always finding the seekers in this world and reporting it directly to you, the free and the brave. We encourage all of our fans to check out our website at www.themetaphysicalmysteries.com where we have more content and reference items, links to many of our amazing and cutting-edge guests. We are excited to have you with us again. And as you know, this is the must-do podcast for anybody who is anybody in the metaphysical field. We cover everything from ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, amazing healing sciences, and leading technologies that are simply the coolest. We'll bring in researchers, doctors, and authors, and give you content that you cannot get anywhere else. Check out our latest merchandise and proudly wear and use the Metaphysical Mysteries clothing and accessories. Now, on with our next episode. Good day, folks. This is Terry and Tom from the Metaphysical Mysteries with another exciting episode. And today we have with us Professor Andrew Ward, his PhD, Tulane University in the great city of New Orleans, a big mix of everything that is uh, American, French, Creole, Indian, African-American. There's everything in New Orleans, and uh, Lord knows he's got a, a list of things and experiences there. He is uh, an assistant professor of uh, political science, in fact, and uh, international development down in Tulane. And he grew up in several different countries. We've got Yemen, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, India, and weirdly enough, Virginia, United States. <laughs> I like that. Uh, you got your BA in religion, and after going through all those countries, you probably needed it. Um, then you taught history of English. I, I probably need that myself, uh, in English lit. So, um, and then you taught uh, in uh, Polona, is that right? University in Poland, is that correct? That's correct, in the Go great on. city of Czestochowa. Don't ask me to repeat that, but <laughs> I'm with you. Um, then you get your master's from uh, Framington State College, the European campus, uh, where you uh, uh, introduce or er, uh, entertained yourself and others as a lounge singer. So uh, some of my uh, more wilder times, yes. Yeah, yeah. You got quite an eclectic background. That's that's fascinating. Uh, get your MS and PhD in international development there in Tulane. Uh, interesting and, and kind of getting into the guts of probably what we're going to talk a little bit about today is you became a tour guide uh, in the French Quarter and directed, uh, uh, you know, tours around for a lot of different reasons. I'll let you explain those in more detail. Uh, but then you also uh, were involved at, at a director level for a lot of not, not-for-profits and um, some other uh, programs that helped uh, bridge the Islamic world with the USA uh, in, in a project. So those are cool. You've got some, you've authored several academic pieces, stage plays. The one I thought was kind of interesting here was a play, uh, uh, a Bourbon Street Sojourn, uh, a six foot Creole cockroach guides an eight year old boy through the quarter. <laughs> I think I'd like to see that one just, just to see the costumes, if, if nothing else. So anyway, with all, with all that being said, uh, Andrew, uh, welcome uh, to the Metaphysical Mysteries. Glad to have you. Thank you, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. So 
tell us about well whatever you want to tell us about you've got quite a background uh i know the tour the tour guide and the ghost thing you know in, in the metaphysical world uh, clearly that's of interest but i know you get so many different experiences from other countries uh with the religious background and so forth you know how did you come to be this uh tour guide and and that's a lesser of your positions but probably pretty fascinating Oh, and so much fun too. Uh, yes, you know, thank you for the lengthy uh, intro. I hope your listeners are still with us here and, and actually ready for us to dive in the way that they're used to having listened to your podcast before. Um, yes, so as you mentioned, I grew up abroad. I come from a long line of diplomats, professors, and drunken sailors. And uh, somewhere, but you know, in the mix of that Venn diagram of humanity, um, you know, traveling around places like North Yemen and India and Pakistan, I fell in love with a real third world developing country, South Louisiana. And, uh, you know, moving here in 2004, I was utterly fascinated, you know, by this little pocket of what calls itself part of the USA, but couldn't be further from. I mean, we're really just the northernmost point of the Caribbean. We have the same like socioeconomic indicators uh, as many parts of West Africa. And uh, so it is a it, it is an American it is a it is a Caribbean city masquerading as an American town. And uh, basically, the day I arrived, I said, "That's it. I'm not moving around anymore. I found my permanent home, and I'm here forever." Um, and so, one of the best things that ever fell into my lap was uh, you know this this potential to become a tour guide in order to pay my way through the dissertation writing stage of my graduate school experience, and probably the best job I've ever had. I mean, I, you mentioned before that you've been on a couple tours before, uh, Tom, have you, have you, have you ever visited the big easy Crescent city before? Absolutely. It was down there a number of years ago for a couple of conferences and it's a great place to be, especially the jazz festival. Oh, absolutely. Did you have an opportunity to go on a ghost tour perchance? Uh, I did not. Well, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I'm delighted to tell you a little bit more. We can do a, 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 a truncated uh, version of it today to the level of your interest. Um, and so I got, uh, you know, passed the test because every tour guide in the city has to, you know, essentially give DNA samples and fingerprints and, you know, pee in a cup. And then you pass your written exam and then you farm yourself out with your new certification to uh, various companies and see where you are a more natural fit. So where I ended up as a more natural fit was in the wide world of haunted history tours. And um, one thing that was really striking, you know, I was 25 years old when I moved to the States. In that period of time, I don't think anybody had ever asked me that quintessential American question, do you believe in ghosts? Because it was just a given. It was just completely understood everywhere else that those other entities were around us in various forms. It was only uh, upon my advent in this country that there is this, you know, deep seated skepticism, uh, sort of like the Missouri motto, you got to show me, won't believe it till I see it and smell it and have, you know, triple proof about it. Um, it, it was really curious to me. Um, that of all places, it would be the United States that had the greatest level of skepticism against all things paranormal, supernatural, and metaphysical. Um, you guys deal with this on the daily. Has that been your experience as well? Is that there's a, a, a general resistance to all matters of this variety? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I was born in Missouri, so I, 
<laughs> I understand your comment uh because so, like, i say that all the time show me and uh because we take that approach but uh, you know like reincarnation uh only in america do you get a raised eyebrow no place else in the world do you get that i mean 85 percent of the world understands that's an absolute concept uh even the university of virginia you know has an entire wing dedicated to reincarnation studies and uh that being said once you understand that then the things that go bump in the night make a lo whole lot more sense and the idea that you know when everybody dies you know some move through the light probably 80 mm -hmm. some percent 85 percent but there's always that 15 percent that don't for a number of different reasons and they end up on tv shows <laughs> and uh, you know they go bump in the night and those are the ghosts and they they have issues and they they they'll eventually go but uh in the meantime people are making money off of them and uh, you know that's kind of sad and happy at the same time but um yeah so yeah they really do have that same issue i believe and tommy i know you're out in massachusetts and you've got salem right there in your state i mean the classic witch tale so what do you think about that out there and that's really the attraction up here that the one place that people open their mind to it and there are a lot of haunted you know locations around the state in new england but once we get past that it's more of a, a one-off rather than a mainstream type thought process so it's a, it's hard for people to accept up here new england's known as 200 years of tradition unimpeded by progress so <laughs> That's good. I'm stealing that. And I might rebrand it for parts of Louisiana as well. But gentlemen, what do you chalk this up to? Why is there this, you know, why all those eyebrows being raised at the notion of reincarnation? Well, what is it that is so distinctly American about doubting something that 85% of the rest of the planet takes as granted? The church. Yeah, religion is probably the biggest one. Sure, absolutely. I mean, um, I don't know that they consciously do it on purpose but you know they tend to put a lot of fear in people and when you have fear in people um you know they go to some place they think safe and that's somebody who in effect controls them to a degree and once you're not fearful anymore uh you don't necessarily go there as much or as often or with the same kind of reverence i suppose but i i believe that uh the victorian era still stands strong uh, hmm. in america we're only three generations out from that really and uh it's handed down from your great grandparents on you know i mean you couldn't even look at a woman's ankles back in the day you're gonna go to hell for that for sure and so uh in the concept of hell uh that is a big factor in all this believing in you know voodoo which um, <laughs> I, I use it in a general sense down there it's very specific um but believing in a woo-woo and airy fairy stuff that's all for kids and kids tales and grim fairy tales and so on and so forth but in in reality people truly know and even the deepest most religious people sometimes end up in my office or oftentimes do and they know there's more to it than what they're getting told and they don't like to get the wool pulled over their eyes americans don't like that at all thus the current mistrust in government mm. um, you know when people don't tell you the truth then you get a little wound up so you want to go explore it so then they end up down in new orleans with you going okay show me <laughs> i'm from missouri show me what you're talking about and then you get to put on the uh you know fantastic tour and get them in there so you you have the people coming in what are they asking you i mean you're, you're dealing with them every day in that kind of a concept we have uh okay so i would come right out of the starting gate and agree with you that about 85 percent of spirits go on to the light and about 15 percent for whatever reason and there's a wide wide spectrum uh they linger beyond i would say that's uh probably the general number in new orleans i think it's probably closer to 40 percent 
I would say 40% of the, the, the living humanoids stick around after their corporeal death in this city uh, for a number of reasons. One, whatever it was that drew them here in the first place is similar to them not being able to go towards the light after death. And some of them are just having so much damn fun. Why would they go anywhere else? There is not a bar in the city that does not have a little corner, a little nook, a little altar for the dead. And that level of respect is something that they feed off of, that they uh, they appreciate that level of uh, being honored and remembered. And why would you be in a hurry to leave if there's going to be a pretty bartender pouring you a shot and leaving a cigar at the end of the bar for you, you know, every week uh, anniversary for you um, for, for years after you're gone? We have, there's at least, I'm thinking off the top of my head, there's three bars in the quarter that have shrines to dogs that have died. We have jazz funerals for old cats. The Preservation Hall uh, you know, down on St. Peter Street, um, they had a cat that was there for about two decades. And when he finally you know, crossed the Rainbow Bridge, there was a parade with about 500 people and two brass bands honoring you know, his time there. And people swore the very next day that he was back. They saw him out of the corner of their eyes. They're like, why would this cat go anywhere else? How could he be in a hurry to be reincarnated as a boring old human when he could be a celebrated cat for the rest of eternity? Um, so one of the things that shocks a lot of people when they arrive here is the ubiquity of the dead. You know, our cemeteries are above ground. You're never going to have this uh, almost sanitized, sterile separation that is so prevalent in other parts of the country where the dead are over there, you don't watch them die, you have no interaction with them, um, whereas here they're positively everywhere. And it goes that way also with intergenerational relationships. Something else that I found is distinctly American that doesn't exist in New Orleans is, you know, 50-year-olds tend to hang out with 50-year-olds and 20-year-olds hang out with 20-year-olds. Whereas in this city, it's perfectly normal to have friends twice your age or half your age and to have these social structures. So people see each other in every stage of life, whether it's bringing new life into the world or being ready to pass out of it yourself. And uh, so that's something that people instantly see and sense on a, a sixth or seventh sense level uh, upon arrival. And then I get to talk about basically uh, what, how people have died here in gruesome ways, um, in lovelorn ways, and in heroic ways over the last three centuries. You know, New Orleans was founded in 1718, but we have a good 2,000 years of indigenous stories uh, that precede them. Um, but I, I don't mean to monopolize everything right out of the starting gate. I was wondering if you had a particular area of interest uh, that perhaps you'd like to go into. Well, you, you talked about haunted tours. What are the categories if somebody was wanting to take haunted tours? You know, let's start out with something simple. What, what kind of tours could I take if I wanted to? Oh, sure. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, this was obviously a, a big spot for people who were opposed to prohibition at the height of prohibition. It was rated as the uh, fastest place to get an alcoholic drink in America uh, during prohibition. This guy gets off, you know, he's a federal agent. He gets off the train in New Orleans, 42 seconds, and someone offered him an illicit beverage right there. And, you know, things haven't really changed much. We still have drive-through alcoholic daiquiri service. We don't have last call. The bars are 24 seven. Um, we, uh, you know, you can, the zoning is all kinds of wacky. We have liquor stores right next to elementary schools. By God, we should freedom. And uh, so with, um, 
you know, you, you've got your prohibition tours, you've got your Kennedy assassination tours, you've got your uh, Creole history. And, uh, you know, this is a Creole town, not so much a Cajun town, but you can get some Cajun history as well. We've got your cocktail tours and your culinary tours. And then for those who are more interested in the metaphysical world, we've got our vampires because Anne Rice is from right here in New Orleans. And we have a uh, sizable contingent of people who actually live the vampirical lifestyle uh, here in New Orleans, going out as they interpret it, you know, going out exclusively at night, participating actual in uh, live consensual donor uh, bloodletting, etc., and and uh, and blood consumption. Uh, obviously, the, the 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 biggest one that draws the most people in is the ghost tour. Uh, New Orleans is often touted as the most haunted city in America, which I think there's probably five or six other cities that you know might give it a run for its money, but New Orleans certainly none too shabby with the yeah. amount of people that have died here in unpleasant ways and uh, their desire to to stick around for a little bit longer. Yeah, I would think New Orleans would be up there. I've been to, I've traveled this country from stem to stern many times. And I would say Salem, Gettysburg, New Orleans, those things come to mind pretty quick on, on hauntings. What do they all have in common aside from the sheer volume? Uh, the intensity of emotion that took place in those loca locations. And they leave an energetic pattern, of course. And uh, depending on, you know, the vibration of the entity is whether it's a pattern that's a repetitive pattern, you know, which is a, a little bit weaker pattern or whether there's an actual entity uh, that's just not transitioned, you know. So it just depends on you know, a lot of different things. Just like society itself, ghost society is its own unique thing. And uh, each of them have their own, you know, issues. Uh, you know, even today, I was working an exorcism from a distance, and um, some sisters and a mother together with some issues, and uh, they were trying to tune into this. They're not psychics or anything. They don't believe they are anyway, but they actually have some skill. And they were dealing with a, some kind of a reptilian-looking animal, and these were legit uh, folks, church-going people. And they're just uh, and stuff starting to fly around. Poltergeist stuff is happening. Uh, Tommy, you just had a couple of uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, same kind of thing. Entities. Yeah, two of them yesterday. Where one basically was caught in the, the gentleman's torso. He was having trouble breathing, swallowing the whole deal. And then another one was residual from forty years ago, where the person did a demonic exorcism, and literally there was bystander witnesses that watched. The entity leave the woman, go right through him, lifting him off the ground and throwing him to the ground. And there was some residual energetic patterns that had to clear out of there. What type of uh, remedial action did you take? Uh, a little bit of a spiritual healing, just taking him through it and letting the entities know that this wasn't the place for them to be hanging around. Their uh, welcome mat was closed. Mm, interesting. Yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely no shortage of uh, demonic entities lingering around here as well, feeding off of the type of energy. And when tourists arrive here, they tend to let their guard down a lot more than they do back home. They're not participating in uh, protective spiritual practices. They're not attending their usual church services or other religious devotions. And they're uh, taking risks and chances, whether it's uh, you know, substance ingestion or sexual exploration that they wouldn't do at home. And they're opening themselves up, not just biologically, not just physically, uh, but to all sorts of other uh, often negative uh, vibrational uh, assaults. 
And so a lot of people, you know, they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. When you come to New Orleans, you pick up a nasty spirit. You take that shit home. Pardon my French. Exactly. Exactly. Kind of like the Disneyland tour, uh, you know, they're going home with you. And uh, so, um, well, on these tours, what have you seen that has been uh, unique or people would get a little of a little adrenaline dump if they were to see it themselves? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we have a, a whole bunch of really good examples. I, I, I'd love to start with a, a little playful one, if I may. Um, there's a hotel called the Andrew Jackson on um, Royal Street, 900 block. And um, the Andrew Jackson Hotel was originally an all boys boarding school. And in the second great fire of New Orleans, because it burnt down twice in the space of just eight years, um, the, the boarding school burnt down along with hundreds of other buildings. And inside, three little boys lost their lives. And the thing about really young children, and I know you guys know this already, is oftentimes they don't even know they're dead. So their spirits continue to hang around completely oblivious to the fact um, that their bodies are no longer there and they perceive time differently, but their personalities really remain the same. So the Andrew Jackson Hotel has endless numbers of uh, complaints that there are these kids running up and down the halls and they're screaming and they're laughing and they're flicking the lights back on and forth. And uh, every time they try to turn the news to, you know, turn the channel to the news, it'll change by itself to the Cartoon Network. And, you know, all kinds of sort of pleasant, fun things uh, that, that are really quite sweet. But when they call down to the front desk and they say, hey, get those little French kids to shut the hell up. My wife and I are tired. We're hungover. We need to go, you know, get some rest. They say, yes, sir. Right away, sir. Hang up the phone, put the feet back up on the desk and do nothing at all. Because the Andrew Jackson Hotel has a very rare collection of antique furniture and children under 12 are not allowed to stay there. So they know perfectly well, you know, what they're hearing, but they didn't check in that day. They've been dead for 200 years. And of all the tales that I'm familiar with, it was 1987 and there was a, a, a newly married couple from California. They come out and they do all the usual stuff in the quarter and they're running around having a good time, drinking way too much. And uh, their last night in town, you know, they have this gorgeous suite at the back of the hotel on the other side of the courtyard with 12 foot high ceilings, four poster bed, you know, glorious bathroom. And their last night in town, they tear it up a little bit too much. And they had overbooked all the activities they wanted to do. So the next morning they have to wake up at the crack of dawn and go on a swamp tour. They forgot about it. Like, oh God, all right, well, let's just pack now so we can get as much shut eye as we can. So into their satchel, they put the following items, granola bars, drinking water, and their camera. Now it's 1987. So the camera, you know, requires film. And they, the camera that they've got, the little point and click still has three shots left on the existing roll. And they're like, that's not going to be enough to see all the gators throw in an additional roll and carry on. So they wake up like three or four very bleary, uh, hungover hours later. They're so discombobulated. They don't realize not everything is exactly as they left it. They go out to the swamp. It's time to take a picture of a gator and the film will not advance. It appears that they've been cheated out of those last three rolls of film. If you remember in the 80s, you know, Kodak would do that on occasion. And they're like, whatever, that's why we brought the spare, pop it in and here we go. Fast forward two weeks, they've returned to California. They have developed all their honeymoon pictures and there's gorgeous shots of them on Bourbon Street, wonderful stuff in the swamp. But then rather unsettlingly, three photographs of themselves asleep in their bed at the Andrew Jackson Hotel. And they send the camera, the prints and the negatives to the general manager demanding to know who was in their room taking this picture. The, those pictures, their last night in town. And he does like the night manager and says, uh, yeah, um, you know, I see these pictures and I believe it, but uh, you can't blame any of us. 
you see those photographs are taken from an altitude of 12 feet flush with the ceiling directly over the sleeping couple looking down. So I always invite people on my tours, if you would like to stay at the Andrew Jackson Hotel, I invite you to do so. It's very actively haunted by three very, very mischievous little boys who are absolutely harmless, but creepy as hell. <laughs> and so countless people have come on my tour and told me, yep, okay, that explains everything. And some people immediately are like, oh yeah, I wanna stay there. And other people are like, we're getting the hell out now. We want nothing to do with that place. And that's one of those classic examples of something that's harmless, you know, just sweet, um, you know, minus the fact that we're talking about three dead children, but uh, there, there, there's something quite pleasant about that. And it's a great way to sort of warm people up to what they're about to experience and hear on the more horrific levels going on in, in the rest of the quarter. The, you talked about um, them not understanding they're dead and um, we were, we did a, we actually defined that at one time, I actually got it, you know, copyrighted. It's, we call it soul shock. Hmm. Soul shock is especially true with, um, let's say, uh, uh, a soldier all of a sudden gets boom, bullet right through the head, not prepared to die, but he gets a bullet through the head. And uh, soul shock is where they simply are knocked completely out of their body. The body falls to the side. They have no idea they're dead whatsoever. And they are in complete total denial mm. of being dead. I remember talking to a, uh, sounds crazy, but a Civil War soldier. Uh, we were out with a, actually a federal agent who uh, had a lot of gear and equipment. And my wife was with me and, and she's a nurse and RN and so forth. And uh, we start talking to this particular entity and I ask him, so what year is this? He goes, 1863. Mm. And I said, well, what if I told you it was 2013? And he said, well, I'd tell you you're crazy. And I said, well, if I was dead like you, I would say the same thing, but I'll assure you. And he was um, from a regiment, it was Civil War. Uh, this was a Gettysburg experience, in fact. Uh, and he was from a regiment in central Illinois. Uh, that was deployed down there. We could probably look him up and figure out exactly who he was, uh, but he was actually looking for some help. He had no idea, and you couldn't convince him that he was dead because mm. all the buddies were around him also. And so many died from dysentery and other things, you know, but he, you know, in this particular case, uh, yeah, it was a soul shock situation. So, um, and we find that a lot. And so we have to have, um, for those that move others on, moving through the vortex, moving through the, the gateway, whatever you want to call it, they end up having to have, uh, these are psychic typically, they have to have a conversation with them and they have to kind of show them some different things to show that they are in fact mm. gone and they can go ahead and move through the light. But they also- How do they do that? What type of things can you demonstrate uh, in your experience that would actually um, indicate their own passing? Um, you can see them if you are somebody who can see on the other side of the veil. You can actually watch them. And if you, it's especially interesting when you have multiple people who can see and one's kind of acting as the conductor, if you will, and, and doing what's necessary to open up a, a portal and allow them to move through. And then other people see them as well. And I remember uh, a long time ago, a family member of mine uh, has that ability as well. It's kind of runs in the family. And of course, we, we know IONS did a, a nice study on that as well, um, uh, which is the Noetic Institute stuff, but it's a brand new pilot project, but to try to determine whether genetically the stuff is handed down, father to son, mother to daughter, you know, all that kind of thing. And uh, the preliminary pilot project did in fact show that on the seventh chromosome, one group had a protein, the other group didn't. 
you know, as related to being psychic or not. Uh, mm. So, there, so there is some genetic stuff coming. I would imagine that um, they will do a much broader thing. But anyway, not to get off the point too much. Um, family member I had uh, saw a little girl in a corner in an apartment, and uh, another family member came in and and was able to see as well, and uh, said, "Hey, we got to bring her grandmother down here to get her." and they went and opened the portal grandmother appeared they could see her snatched her up and whoosh and she was gone oh wow um and you can move multiples you don't have to do them one at a time you can move multiples and that's something i sometimes talk about sometimes i don't but uh people don't believe it anyway so (laughs) so i don't talk too much about what's possible but uh yeah you can move multiples i mean you can move large scale if you know what you're doing and uh, and you the beauty of that is having other people who have the ability to see mm. saying a word just watching then comparing notes take notes afterwards then we'll read them off and see what everybody saw and interestingly you have four or five and they all see the same thing you know it's happening mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. so there's verification there and those are interesting tests uh, but you keep in mind some of these hotels and stuff you know they don't want these entities to go to the other side because they're making money off exactly there is a brisk business that goes along not just for the hotels but there's a guy named finest shellnut who which is a magnificent name is it not finest shellnut uh, you know is a realtor in the quarter and uh he always posts you know haunted not haunted underneath every single bill saying for lease or for sale and under because we're the only state in the country that has napoleonic code as opposed to English common law, and we have our French civil code, and among other things, you are required to to disclose not just if anybody has died in the property, but if the place is haunted or not. Uh, you know, and that is something that has to that has to come out in all the paperwork. Something that uh, is a holdover of people who just take it as you know, it's not a matter of do you believe it or, or not. This is a reality that must be contended with. And, you know, so as you discuss various people's abilities, I'll be very upfront and say, I am not clairvoyant. I am not a medium. Um, I am surrounded by people who have time and time again, proven their worth uh, in those categories. And of course, there's always going to be, you know, 2% of any population, a bunch of charlatans, and they give a bad name to everybody else. Um, But that certainly does not uh, disprove or discredit the ones who are the real deal. And those are the majority in my experience. But the, there is one thing that I can say I have seen time and time again, unquestionably, and there is a portal um, on the corner of Governor Nichols and Royal Street in the quarter, the famed LaLaurie Mansion. Um, this is where Madame Delphine LaLaurie, uh, who had cycled through two husbands previously, who both died under mysterious circumstances and she inherited everything, eventually marries a man named Dr. Louis Lalaurie, and they proceed to throw lots and lots of parties in this grand, elegant, very, very eerie gray mansion on the corner of Governor Nichols and Royal. And, you know, probably the second day I was in New Orleans back in 2004, I go on a ghost tour and I hear the horrific tale of what happened in there. And before the punchline had even come, I could feel something inside of me saying, uh, you haven't done enough to protect yourself. You need to back away from the structure. Um, This is not where you need to be right now if you wish to retain your health and sanity. And I chalked it up to just this being a great storyteller. I'm in New Orleans. I'm excited. You know, uh, 
how much of this is purely psychosomatic, how much of this is grounded in any form of reality. When I started becoming uh, a tour guide, you know, just doing practice rounds with my friends, we would turn the corner on, you know, to, to, to gaze at this house and people would instinctively, before I said a word, guys, take a step back. There was just a feeling on a hot August swampy summer day, people would get a chill. You don't get a chill in New Orleans in August. That's not a thing, right? But these people would. And so by the time I get my license and I'm taking groups of 28, this is the maximum by law you can take out at a time. And we would be roving the streets and people would be like, ghosts, I love ghosts, ghosts. Woo, come on, let's get another drink. Blah, blah, blah. Suddenly they would calm down. There would be all of those drunken bridesmaids, all of those hooting and hollering motorcycle guys, all of the girls on a birthday party. Suddenly something would happen. The whole energy would shift as soon as they were in front of this three-story gray mansion. And that's before I even told them what happened. Gentlemen, are you ready for me to tell you what happened? Absolutely. Yeah. Splendid. <laughs> so Madame Delphine and Dr. Louis Lalaurie, as I mentioned, throw parties, not one or two a month, but about five or six a week, grand, elegant, luxurious parties that had a budget through the roof. And she would appear wearing three latest Parisian ball gowns at each one of these parties. The money that they had is somewhere equivalent in modern day money of just under a billion dollars of value. And they did not spend it, uh, you know, by investing in the market. They spent it by having these lavish parties that everybody was invited to. They were extremely glamorous um, and they were very, very powerful as, as money tends to be uh, an indicator of. And so one night, it's April 10th, 1834, fire breaks out in the kitchen. It's now the garage, but it used to be the kitchen separated from the main building, specifically in four fires. They didn't want the third great fire of New Orleans to occur. And everybody is evacuated and they come across the street and they're saying, are you okay? Are you fine? All right, everybody's fine. Where's our host and hostess? Where's Dr. Louis? Where's Madame Delphine? We need to see if they're okay. And uh, out comes a small army of servants and white glove wearing slaves with silver platters saying, no, 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 pay no attention. Everything's fine. Just stay exactly where you are. And they serve them hors d'oeuvres on the street across from the house while flames are leaping into the night sky. They roll out a barrel of wine. The band sets up a stage across the intersection and continues to play. It's beginning to look like the A-deck of the Titanic here, right? And everybody's having a fabulous time. Eventually, the police and the fire marshal show up. They go into the kitchen. They find, they put out the flames. And at the center of it is the 71-year-old slave woman who had intentionally set the fire in a suicide attempt because she had broken some minor house rule that morning. And Madame Delphine said after the party, she was going to be taken to the uppermost room. She doesn't know what happens in the uppermost room, but she's heard rumors. And those rumors are terrifying enough that she would rather burn herself alive than find out for sure. Naturally, this intrigues the police and the fire marshal. So they go upstairs to investigate. And at the center of the top floor, surrounded on all sides with hallways, no windows of its own, is this room which is barricaded uh, on the outside and locked. So obviously this means it's designed to keep certain people from outside getting in, but also vice versa. So the fire brigade removes the large beam and uses it as a battering ram. Eventually the door falls to the ground and so do these grown men of the police department and the fire brigade to their knees, vomiting uncontrollably as the stench of rotting human flesh has completely overwhelmed them. They light a couple lanterns and go in to the right. The police chief is the first one to cry out as he bumps into one 
of two operating tables upon which a man and a woman have been chained and they are still alive. And then he realizes he's mistaken. Yes, they're still alive. No, they're no longer a man and a woman. They're the victims of a crude sex change operation with all the tender bits below their waists hacked off and surgically grafted onto the other person's groin. And over on the left, the fire marshal finds a reason to scream for himself as he bumps into a male slave, arms chained above his head, face sliced down the middle and across the center from ear to ear underneath his nose. Each quadrant of his face has been meticulously peeled back and pinned to a corresponding portion of his skull. In the dim light, it appears violent muscle contractions are going on underneath where his face used to be. They bring the lantern close and they find these are not muscles contracting. These are maggots feeding. Maggots intentionally introduced by Dr. Louis in a sadistic experiment to see how long human life could be prolonged with the vermin eating the growing infection there. Then there's a muffled groan on the other side of a waist-high wall. Lying on her belly on the floor is a 20-year-old slave girl, arms, legs, amputated, eyes gouged out, lips, nose, ears, tongue, all surgically removed. She uses her chin to sightlessly propel herself across the floor like a human caterpillar. And the last living horror in the attic was inside a box, according to the police report, which you can still read at the historic New Orleans collection, large enough to accommodate a medium-sized dog. But there's rattling and scratching going on inside the box. They kick the lid off and inside it's a 16-year-old girl, folded up and crammed therein. They gingerly remove her, unfolding her like an accordion, and they find that every bone in her body longer than six inches has been snapped and reset to grow back at odd and opposing angles to make her as physically small as possible. And she can still move, scampering across the floor on her back like a crab. Now, every one of those people I just described was still alive. And they were brought down by the fire brigade and the police in front of that crowd, which I previously described, sipping their wine and enjoying hors d'oeuvres and listening to the band. And they were whipped into an angry mob. They wanted to storm inside and lynch the Lalleries, but they never get a chance because almost a billion dollars in modern day money buys you a lot of police officers. And they managed to put up barricades at either end of the street, holding back the mob. It gave them enough time for them to get inside the carriage. And then crack goes Bastian, the loyal slave's whip. They make their way all the way up Governor Nichols Street to uh, Bayou St. John, where a boat is waiting for them. It carries them to Lake Pontchartrain, where a second larger boat is waiting. They make their way to New York City. They go shopping for nine days. Then they book passage to France. And then they disappear. They're never heard from again. Now, we know that ship arrived safely in France. We know everybody else on the ship's manifest arrived safely. But they themselves are never heard from again. Not there, not then, not anywhere, not ever. And the simple fact of the story is the Lalleries were never brought to justice for their crimes. But we're left behind with this mansion and with the horrors that happen inside. And to what you said earlier, Terry, this is a space of intense human emotion wild intensity of uh, experience that left a mark, a psychic scar on the place, a swirling vortex of pain and sorrow. So the very next day, people are walking by the house on the other side of the street and they hear screams coming from within. There's nothing inside. They completely ransacked that place. They burned all the furniture. The people were so disgusted by what they saw. So then eventually they call the priest. And the priest is told, you need to go inside and exercise this building. And the priest says, I want nothing to do with this building. So he hires six Protestant American soldiers to go in with him. They go inside. 20 minutes later, they run out screaming. 
One of them even left his rifle behind inside the building. According to the priest's diary, they heard, and I quote, otherworldly languages of the dead spoken by angry spirits that would not respond to the ritual of holy exorcism, unquote. Years and years and years passed, and they tried everything. They tried to make it an old girls boarding school at one point in time. That didn't work out very well. They tried to make it a boarding house for the Irish. I mean, why not? The Irish are expendable. Go ahead, throw them in. I can say that. Those are my people. And, um, you know, the no matter who you are, no matter how brave one thinks they might be, you're a 22-year-old Irish woman with your baby, and the 14th time in a row you wake up screaming from the worst nightmare you've ever had. You check on your baby in the crib next to you, and you find she has finger-shaped bruises on her throat. If you are moderately intelligent, you will get the hell out. And they did. So again, it changed hands dozens and dozens of times. 1953, the city of New Orleans itself, the city council said, this building has been pissing us off for 120 years. What are we supposed to do? I know, said one council member, let's subdivide it into apartments and get people from the north, you know, Tom's people to move in there. It'll be great. <laughs> so they did. Yeah, that and, <laughs> yep. And in the um, in the renovations, you know, they're like, well, you know, this is an old building. We need modern plumbing, which means you got to put in, uh, you know, we, we got to put in new pipes and got to rip up the old floorboards. And underneath the old floorboards is a lot more than the old pipes. Hundreds of human bones. 36 complete human skeletons, but this is the worst part. The underside of those floorboards had scratch marks. Those 36 people were illegally smuggled West African slaves, not on any ship's manifest, unknown to everyone for even existing, let alone being trapped under the floorboards. And because they were fresh off the boat from West Africa, they didn't speak French or Spanish or English or any recognizable European language. They spoke an obscure dialect of Senegambian, which is then misunderstood by the priests and the soldiers as otherworldly languages of the dead. So they starved to death underneath the feet of the only people that could have saved them. Now, this story made people say, I want to go there and live there. And other people saying, I don't even want to go to New Orleans because I don't want to have a proximity with a horrible place like that. Either way, those apartments had full occupancy all the way until 2006 when it was converted. Uh, now the average length of stay was eight months. All those people for half a century, most of them couldn't hack uh, a single year. Most of them were saying, this is a, a horrible idea. I want nothing to do with it. Two people committed suicide in that period of time. Six went missing and a whole host, it depends on how you measure it, uh, were institutionalized for various forms of mental illness. Um, the interesting thing is that it was in 2006, it was purchased by none other than the ghost rider himself, Nicolas Cage. Um, this was, I believe, his 21st property. He had mansions and manor houses and castles, you know, all over the world. Once he got that one, though, he goes bankrupt. He loses all of his money. The only piece of property he owns left anywhere in the world is his own grave in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, a gigantic pyramid uh, in the oldest cemetery in New Orleans. But he, he lost that house. And eventually uh, it ended up in the... Um, in the possession of a, a gentleman named uh, Mr. Whalen, who is uh, part Hollywood producer, part oil trader out of Houston. That's who currently owns it. He himself has said that nothing strange has ever happened inside the building, um, except for some creepy dreams. But over my years of telling stories in front of that house, I've had 36 people faint, pass out right in front of that building. That's before I even got to all the gory, creepy, unpleasant stuff. They're just looking at me and they're like, 
don't feel very good here. And looking at the blood drain from their face, the knees lock up and down they go. Timber, one after another after another. Of, of all the people who fainted, um, my favorite was this guy who was with his girlfriend who said, I don't feel good. And they go across the street to get away from the building. And uh, the whole time he's, he's mad. You know, you, you can tell that they were early in their relationship because if they had been together longer, he would have stayed here. Fine, you jet kiddo. Uh, and so I hear him mumbling and muttering the whole time as we're making our way to Jackson Square. It's like, why didn't you let me listen? I really wanted to hear the story, blah, blah, blah. It's all fake anyway. None of it's real. You know, it's all in your head. So we get in front of St. Louis Cathedral in Jackson Square. We're about to discuss public executions that occurred there. Before I even start, he's still railing this girl, you know, with, with his... Um, with, with his grumblings about why, you know, he should have been there and none of it's real. And boom, down he goes. Head sla slams into the cobblestones, right? By, or they're actually flagstones, uh, right there by St. Louis Cathedral. And you know how head wounds are. So much blood. Oh my God, this gigantic lake of blood coming up behind him. He's still conscious the whole time, right? And all the tourists in the universe all like, this is so cool. And they're taking all these pictures like, it's real, it's real, the curse is real. So I count him as number 37, uh, but I've had 36 faint in front of the building and uh, he, he is number 37. So the story of the Lowry Mansion continues. People have tried to make uh, movies. It's been on A&E, Discovery Channel, History Channel, Travel Channel, Sci-Fi, Bravo. Uh, even Playboy did a, a spot on this, on this particular building. I urge everyone to go and take a look and to check in with themselves and see how they feel. People have sworn they've seen something as simple as orbs and clouds of ectoplasm, but overwhelmingly, it is a place of intense physical and uh, spiritual misery. And that pockmark on the face of the city remains and is every bit as powerful as it was 180 years ago. Yeah, that, that's exactly the kind of stuff that causes hauntings and, uh, you know, all kinds of energetics that people get a chance to feel. And I, don't, I, I think people have to understand that they, you know, their souls, their, their spiritual souls are just inhabiting a bag of bones right now, but the bag of bones serves as their radar sonar all the senses come through that that's how we navigate uh you know this particular environment that we're in and so when they get close to that all those senses start firing off it in in a range that they're not accustomed to and it's an overload and then they go down with a faint or, or worse as the case may be so yeah that would be substantially correct uh, an assessment of what's going on there. So that's that's fascinating. Well, if that doesn't uh, entice people to uh, uh, come to New Orleans and uh, check out some ghost stories and and tours, I don't know what what would. And I, you know, I know out in the uh, plantations, uh, there are some of the plantations uh, that have ghost stories in and of themselves. If they take the tour about half an hour out of town or so, mm -hmm. um, I was out there. Let's see, was it last year? Last year, maybe year before anyway uh fairly recently and um i was walking through one of the plantations and and i asked them about that and they said uh yeah you know we get folks come through every now and then so i i just kind of started to tune in and i picked up on a lady in one room but i said this i described her and said there was a death here and and then but I said, she goes back and forth between this other room. And we went into the other room. And then I, I said, this is her right here. There was a picture, a little, little picture. And I said, that woman right there is who I'm seeing. And I said, that's exactly what we get every time. Uh, 
Interesting. That's the woman. So do you remember which plantation it was? Perhaps Oak Alley, Laura, Myrtles? I think it was Laura. Uh, hmm. Yeah, that, I think that was what it was. I, I did all of them, you know, at one point. So, uh, but I think that's what it was, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, and I walked the, walked the grounds and, you know, you can feel different energies if you walk the grounds. And you know, if you're tuned in, you can, it, but a lot of it's been dissipated to a great degree because- hmm. There's a lot of reverence and respect now in 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 those areas where people come to uh, not to make fun of, but to understand, educate themselves, so we don't repeat some, you know, terrible injustice uh, again, you know, in, in any kind of respect. So some of that just has dissipated in some places. But mm. this, this was a Caucasian lady um, who was uh, the mistress of the house at some point. Mm. And then it would hand it down to younger generations, but she still stayed uh, anyway. And there, there was one room where several deaths took place. And I think it was related to the, I want to say the birthing room or something. Okay. They would have that would make sense. That would, you know, make sense back in the day. The percentage of people died in childbirth and so forth, and babies that died as well. So, so, but anyway, yeah, it's fascinating if people get a chance to get down to New Orleans and see some of this. Um, so has any of this uh, helped you when you, I mean, you're teaching at a, at a major university, you know, uh, visiting professor at Tulane. Uh, so any of this background, has that helped you in doing your professional job? Unquestionably. Um, so it actually went into, I ended up writing my doctoral dissertation on the tourism industry in New Orleans. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, one of the remarkable things, you know, everybody touts tourism all over the world as a fantastic export economy. It's a way of enriching a general population. It's a way of employing large numbers of people. Um, but what my research indicated uh, with New Orleans as one of several case studies um, is, is that generally no, is that the overwhelming amount of the money that comes in from the tourists gets hyper-concentrated in the hands of the very few. And while wages remain stagnant over the course of decades, cost of living continues to go up. And there was a time, I mean, in 19, at the, you know, at the end of World War II, 1945, 50,000 people lived, worked, played, shopped, went to school in the French Quarter. 50,000 people, that was their neighborhood, right? Now, less than 3,000 people live full-time in the French Quarter because they're the only people who can afford to. You know, there's only, there's about 10 kids under the age of 18 that live in the French Quarter whose homes are there, whereas there used to be hundreds and there used to be thousands. Um so that that very significant uh, transition has, a, has occurred as a direct result of the economic shift and as a result of the uh, preference of the tourism industry. So one of the things that popped up was, OK, well, why? You know, New Orleans has more uh, bartenders with master's degrees per capita than anywhere in the country because everybody wants to stay. You came here, you got your graduate degree, just like when people die and they don't leave, you know, you, you graduated, you got those precious letters after your name, but you, you don't want to go back to Des Moines. You don't, you know, you don't want to go back to no offense, Boston or, or wherever else you found something here that resonated with you on a level that nowhere else has been able to do. And, uh, and, and that's more meaningful than however much someone's going to pay you. So people stick around in these low wage jobs with very little mobility, getting paid cash in hand. And New Orleans has several times in history been the murder capital of America. But one thing that it's always remained indisputably is the missing persons capital. It's really easy to be anonymous here. You can show up, pay your rent weekly in cash, 
You don't present any ID. You can live a life as a person, whoever you uh, pretend to masquerade yourself as. There's going to be a job available for you and people won't ask questions. Um, and, you know, this is the number two pickup place for mercenaries in America. Miami is number one. New York is a distant number three. Um, but so many people, former military, down on their luck, come to New Orleans to drink away their sorrows, and then they get picked up by one of the recruiters that are here. And they say, hey, I can tell by your stance, by your haircut, by your muscle tone, you look ex-military. Uh, how about an exciting life, you know, doing security, security in the Gulf or in West Africa or wherever else, a lot in the Philippines. Um, and so those people all play into my field of international development whether it's the, you know, the military industrial complex, whether it's the uh, economic industry, the, the great hope of tourism to revitalize fledgling nations and fledgling communities. Um, every major social issue that is currently being faced in our country, if not the world, is being faced right here in New Orleans. You know, climate change, we, I'm, <laughs> we're, we, we see it up close and personal an awful lot, you know, storm after storm after storm becoming more frequent just in the 17 years I've been here, more frequent and more intense. And so the opportunity, I will call it the privilege to have met so many people on all the tours that I've done and gotten their perspective. Uh, what is it? that they felt what, you know, seeing this city again through their eyes coming from across the country and around the world informs my dissertation, informs my lectures for class and no less than half a dozen of my students have gone on to become tour guides themselves. So that's a long winded answer to your question, but I hope it sufficed. Well, I know Katrina, when that hit, you know, I, I got deployed down there and I, you know, it was such a bizarre thing because I had been to New Orleans at least a dozen times, you know, for vacation type scenarios. And uh, I think we talked a little bit about this, but I remember walking down Bourbon Street and there was zero human mm. beings there, zero. And uh, I was walking with a military guy, a guy from New York PD, a couple and myself and another guy from my department out of Illinois. And uh, just stopped, you know, and just stopped and just stared. And, you know, if you could look up at some of the skyscrapers type stuff and the windows are busted out and the, the, the uh, you know, curtains are flowing in the wind. And it was one of the most bizarro worlds uh, that you could possibly imagine. I mean, the only thing was there was the ghosts. And, yeah. uh, you know, I sometimes wonder if they didn't head for Houston for a better drink that day. But, you know, <laughs> so, uh, but that, you, you know, and I, I wonder um, since since Katrina now, you know, with Ida that just came through, but um, any change in, in uh, spiritual, you know, stuff and ghosts and so forth. I and mean, so many people died with Katrina. I don't know if you've seen any uptick and especially in the lower ninth and so forth, or if anybody's even tried to figure it out. Absolutely. And the scene you're describing, you know, it, it, sort of a lot of what just happened with Ida really brought back a lot of the feelings and uh, the dread and unsurety that I experienced in Katrina. And I know I'm not alone in that at all. Um, the, the desolation was, was truly uh, unbelievable. It really was post-apocalyptic film style. Um, and, that, and you're describing Bourbon Street, you know, which didn't even flood. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the, the parts of the city where the wall of water just washed away an entire neighborhood in under 60 seconds. 
Um, you know, a lot of people said, why were they even there? Why would you rebuild New Orleans, et cetera? You know, the, I find oftentimes demographic is, information is, is helpful for people. You know, 80% of the people who died were over the age of 65. And they were, you know, they had all kinds of underlying health issues. How are you going to tell, you know, Miss Nancy, who's 80 years old on dialysis with hypertension, that she needs to walk from the lower ninth ward in late August to get to the convention center or the Superdome? She has no car. She doesn't know anyone who has a car, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a lot of the people who died felt an extreme sense of abandonment. Um, and a lot of that negative emotional vibration has stayed and people have done the locals have done as much as possible to honor to remember and to make as many preparations as possible to ensure that something like this never happens again the official toll is about 1800 people died um they stopped counting after a point and they were still finding bodies a year two years later so i would put the number significantly higher um, and, and that's been corroborated by a number of different reliable sources. Um, but one of the things that everybody uh, you know, who was there, no matter their level of belief in the woo-woo, as you mentioned earlier, will you know, get enough drinks in them and they will you know, pull you aside and they'll say, I saw something, I felt something. In the aftermath of the storm, uh, all of those people I mentioned earlier, all those bridesmen, all those uh, bridesmaids, all those um, bikers, they provide a lot of energy for many of these spirits to feed upon. And when the city was evacuated and there was nobody here and it was just those fluttering curtains out the windows, uh, the spirits were very, very, they were starving. And so, yes, they, they, they would have been better served to go to Houston and get a good meal there. Um, but the ones that stuck around prayed extra hard on the humans that stuck around. We had a very, very unfortunate case as a, a young couple, attractive couple uh, that was working in the service industry. Uh, he worked at Bufa's, she worked at Spotted Cat and they rode it out in the storm. They were on the cover of the New York Times. You know, everybody was uh, like, oh, look, look at this couple, they're the future. They're gonna be what the rebuilding New Orleans looks like. Well, one day, neither of them show up for work. And a couple of days later, uh, you know, he jumps off the roof of the Omni Royal Hotel to his to his doom, and they find in his pocket a uh, eight page suicide note folded up and put into a um, plastic bag. It says he did, you know, he had been in the service and he had done things in, uh, I believe it was Kosovo and in Iraq, and he didn't feel guilty about it. And because he didn't feel guilty about it, he knew something was wrong. And then he completely went over the deep end and did something especially horrible to find out what it is, go to his uh, apartment, which was at that time above the voodoo temple on Rampart Street. A lot of people read way too much into that, um, but that was purely for uh, locational reasons that I mentioned it. So they go inside and, you know, his girlfriend had been uh, murdered, had been dismembered and had been uh, partially cooked uh, for, you know, for the purposes of his own consumption of her flesh. And this murder-suicide cannibalism, you know, shocked the country. And again, tourism, tourism, tourism. If you're saying, if you're telling everybody about this, nobody's going to come to New Orleans. This is not going to be a family-friendly place. So the press, the police department, city government, and the scions of the tourism industry all got together and they said, that's it. 
No more of these stories are coming out. I don't care how many horrible things happen to tourists, no matter how gruesome and gory, we will keep that under our hat because we need tourists to come here and revitalize our economy. So the endless tales, stories, rumors that every single hotel worker in New Orleans can tell you uh, continues to live on, but most certainly not in the national press because those spirits are still trying to regain their vibrational calories that they lost out on in 2005. Yeah, you know, I do tell people it's a lot like I said, you are nothing more than a Slurpee from 7-Eleven to a ghost and, and they just want to stick a you know, straw on you and suck you dry. That's how they live. They need that um, electric light energy, you know, to, to be functional. Otherwise they, they, will, they will transition to the other side. Uh, they will never have enough Gilgo juice to stay here. So they're dependent. And people always say, you know, are there ghosts in uh, cemeteries? Well, you know, uh, some cemeteries, I mean, like in, in New Orleans, it would make sense because there's so many tourists that go through there. But a lot of the remote cemeteries, no, there's no energy there. I'd right. A theater or stadium or, or something like that, uh, you know, uh, an inner city where you've got more Slurpees to, to, you know, <laughs> to drink from and uh, lots of different flavors too. So, you know, that's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So, um, you know, uh, I did a quick remote view with you yesterday. Do you have that uh, piece by chance in the, in the room that I, I, I remote viewed that uh, head face mask thing? I'd like to see what it was. Do you suppose this was it or <laughs> perhaps this one? Uh, the one in your right hand. I believe that would be the one. Yes, that would that would look like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. So, folks, what I did was we were talking um, yesterday just to, you know, chit chat before the podcast. And uh, I would just did a remote view. And I said there was like this wooden uh, face and uh, head kind of looking thing. And I said it looked african and and andrew of course said yeah yeah i got it i got it right here you know so I, I had not seen it so thank you for showing that to me it's nice to get some confirmation on what you see when you do a remote view and one of these days we'll do a nice uh, podcast on remote viewing get one of the original stargate guys or something to come in and, and do that so that's a lot of fun tommy you had something i'm just uh enjoying the stories from down south this is really powerful stuff and i think the audience is going to agree with that um, you'll be having a lot of rec requests for tours, I think, from people across the country. When you look at this, um, I know you talked about there was different people coming down to, you know, national syndicated uh, television programs and such. Has anyone done any work on trying to help these spirits that exist transition? Or mm. is it a case that they're just trying to hold on to them because it's great for tourism? Uh, short answer, yes, to both. Um, the, there have been innumerable well-intentioned, but I don't think very powerful, uh, spiritually people who have tried to heal that psychic gash and have tried to assist them going into the light and generally it just backfires. The people that I'm familiar with who have attempted that end up having an unbelievable slew of bad luck themselves afterwards. And there is no diminishment of the activity at the place itself. Um, I think the experience of the people, you know, tortured there, um, they, I don't think they're, I don't know if it's soul shock. Maybe you can look into that a bit more. Um, 
they're they're still so hurting. It's sort of like a, a you know someone who is in a great state of emotional distress. Uh, they're not interested in being rationalized why they're in emotional distress. They just really want you to know that they're hurting, and they're and it's been 170 years. Um, but uh, I, I think uh, I think they still want us to know, and they want more people to know. And until that critical mass of knowledge has occurred, I don't think they're going to be ready to go on. So what you're telling me is you're going to get a group of highly trained psychic mediums and you're going to bring them in. They're going to start to tell stories. You're going to write a book that's going to bring all this out into the public and you're going to make a million dollars at it and will also clear up the space at the same time. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. And the book will be coming out next spring. Look for Reverend Dr. Andrew Ward's The Lallery Mansion Story. <laughs> that sounds like fun to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, uh, I will say this on that thing, Tommy, and just uh, uh, the Auschwitz and other concentration camps, World War II, obviously horrendous problems. My, my understanding is, in some of these anyway, that there had been a, a, a group of uh, Buddhist monks that had come and, and worked uh, to clear those spaces. And people that I know that are um, psychic medium types that have went through uh, and toured those have reported, yeah, it is, no pun intended, dead. I mean, it's, there's, mm -hmm. it's neutral space. Um, and there may be one spot or two in there, maybe where experiments or something was done that's still a little live, get some issues. But I think what people try to do when they come in to do that is they try to, as the classic uh, statement is, um, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You know, one bite, one at, bite a at a time. And so they tend to try to get it all done in one fell swoop when you got to work around the edges first and then start to move your way in little by little as you slowly slowly and the entities also will see what you're doing and you're doing it in a respectful way you're trying to move things on get the energy cleared and that's going to take time and very few people in america particularly have the time nor the desire nor the energy to actually do it so it would be a project and the challenge is it is america ultimately although nor new orleans but <laughs> who's going to pay for the time and the effort uh, to actually go through that process unless you get mm -hmm. somebody who wants to who's a billionaire wants to underwrite that and have proper people there for a year and a dedicated process they are going to have to have time away they need to decompress themselves you've got to rotate people in you got to you know it, it would be a process I, in my estimation it would be well something that deep it's mm -hmm. it's not going to be a, a one one man one band show it's going to mm -hmm. take a while to change the energy over and doing positive things around the fringes, very positive things around the fringes. Uh, that would be my recommendation. And then slowly start moving in, you know, first floor, start doing really positive things and having only positive experiences in there. Um, that's how you work your way through the whole thing. It's no different for, I'll say police officers clearing a building. Mm. Don't just run into the center of it. You start working it. Get the light on if you can, so you're not having to work with flashlights. You know, start working your way door to door, place to place, clear, 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 clear. Eventually, the whole building becomes clear, and it's safe to go in. And there's no no hidden traps that we are, are expecting, and that's the way I would go about it if I was assigned that task uh, to do. So, I mean, that's just my two cents worth for what that's worth. No, that's a great analogy, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's uh, you know, we, we we don't do full frontal assaults in warfare anymore. You know, we, we we've got to try to outflank them and do it incrementally. I uh, couldn't agree more. So. 
Well, very good. Um, we're going to wind this up for now. Um, fascinating, fascinating stuff and great storytelling. And no wonder you're, you're at the top of the heap on the, on the tourist list uh, to come and do these. And I'm quite sure you could, you could tell stories uh, all day long in all different categories and keep people uh, educated and entertained forever. But Andrew, uh, as we get ready to wrap this up, is there anything you want to leave the folks with uh, here on the podcast? I invite everyone to come down to New Orleans and be part of the, uh, the the rebirth of our city, but do try to get out of the quarter, see the rest of this town. 80% of the tourists spend most of their time on six blocks of Bourbon Street, but there's a whole lot more of our city that's waiting for you. And if you do that, I promise not to feed you to the spirits. <laughs> there you go. Tommy, you got anything? And I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing these stories. I know some people have trouble believing this stuff and you know, with someone of your background, your stature, to be able to share that messaging can really help open some eyes, I believe, going forward. So to do that, that's really an honor. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Very good. Well, um, with that all being said, I will say that uh, for Tom and myself uh, and Andrew, uh, thanks for joining us for this uh, very unique uh, podcast related to New Orleans and all the ghosts and so forth there. So I uh, thank everybody for being here and uh, boy, we'll, we will talk to you next time. Thank you very much. Ciao. You know, Andrew, there was one question I should have asked you. How many entities have you seen that wear beads? Ha, ha, ha.